السلام علیکم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم الحمد للہ رب العالمین وصلاۃ وسلام و علیہ سید المرسلین و علیہ وصحابی اجمعین ربش رحلی صدری و سرلی عمری وحل العقدن من لسانی یف کہو کولی My name is Farhat Amin and welcome to a new episode of A Muslim Mum. So, in this podcast I will be doing a book review of Headscarves and Hymens: Why the Middle East Needs a Sexual Revolution by Mona El-Tahawi. This book was published in 2015. So, I've spent a long time planning this review because it's not something I've taken lightly. I did read this book about two weeks ago and as I said it was printed in 2015 however it's when it was first published it had a lot of interest and when I said I was going to be doing a review I put it on my Instagram I posted it up there I got a surprising number of people saying yeah they'd really be interested in listening to this so I thought yeah I have to do justice to the topic so firstly why did I read this book you know the title is hardly islamic you know what could i possibly learn from a book whose title has such promiscuous connotations you know why would why would i do that so let me explain why uh, the reason why i've read this book was for the purpose of research for a new book that i'm writing with fellow muslim writers on the topic of the islamic alternative to feminism now I've been interested in this topic for over a year now and if you listen to I did a whole season on feminism and Islam that you can you can listen to at your leisure. So when I became interested in this topic I genuinely have made an effort to understand feminist ideas by reading books by non-muslim and muslim feminists as I don't want to have just a shallow second-hand understanding of this topic. Now as I've said in previous podcasts the women's liberation movement was a movement that was initiated by non-muslim secular liberal women living in Europe who believed women should have equal rights as men to men that that's the basis and also you know America as well as well as Europe Now these rights let's go look at the history where did these rights come from These rights were essentially thought up or conceived you know or devised by John Locke who was a 17th century philosopher he is the founding father of liberalism so it's really this whole idea of rights comes from him he thought them up you know he has a prophet like status amongst liberals now in his secular teachings he states that man is born with natural rights these rights cannot be taken away and and these rights include uh, the right to life liberty and property these rights reflect that all human beings are born equal in the sense that each individual is of equal moral worth so that's where this rights idea comes from and we should so when we think of rights and i want my rights and i deserve these rights you need to think about it was john locke who came up with this and you can do some research on your own about that Now what we have seen is is each century has passed these rights have evolved and changed and been added you know more rights have been added and 
And therefore, so has the feminist movement, you know, the rights that they want, because every time it's whatever men have, women have to have it. So that social, political, sexual rights, everything keeps getting added to this. And so, and what you now have is these inalienable rights, you know, these um, rights that can't be taken away, they're now known in modern terms as human rights, yeah? So that's where we're up to now, that all humans have these rights and we should want these rights and and no one can take them away from us now (coughs) i wanted to explain this that background so you can understand where the author is coming from so mona el tahari she is a liberal she believes in human rights all of what i've just said she believes in that and um she describes herself as a secular radical feminist muslim that's her words So secular meaning, you know, religion and um, life are separate. You know, I I can believe in God, but God isn't going to have an impact on my day-to-day life. That's what, you know, a very reduced, limited um, impact on my life, okay? So her lens for looking at the world and finding solutions is equality and freedom. It's not Islam. So that's, that's something... I thought it's really important to understand because if we don't understand where what ideas an author is coming to bringing to their book we then can't understand their solutions and we so that that that's I just wanted to make that clear now um here's a common mistake that I have been guilty of making and maybe you have too now there are so few books written by Muslim women about Muslim women's issues. You know, slowly that number is increasing, but we can agree on that. So when we see one, we, um, we it's like we jump on it <laughs> and we don't evaluate or critique the ideas that the author is conveying as we would if it had been written by a non-Muslim. I don't, do you agree with that? Uh, that's what I have realised. And... Because I've been, you know, um, I, I've I've been making an effort to read more. I know when I was when I was sixteen and younger and eighteen, I used to read a lot. Uh, many mums say this that when we were younger, we used to read more. But once we had the kids, or once we started working, once we got married, we we didn't we don't read as much. And I now and that I would say that was the same for me. But I remember the first books that I really wanted to read when I was learning about Islam were books about Muslim women written. So there's, as well as, okay, you know, seal books. So there's Karen Armstrong's book about the life of the Prophet, but there was the, these whole books about princesses in Saudi Arabia. Um, something Sassoon, I think, was her name. Um, and there was a book called Sold, and there was a book called... I wanted to read them. And so... <clears throat> What I'm saying here is that we don't evaluate or critique the ideas when it's written by a Muslim woman in particular. We seem to give it more, um, we're just not as, um, uh, what's objective, I would say. So now as Muslims, it's our obligation to seek truth and seek the knowledge. You know, we, we, we want to unearth the truth, don't we? We want to find the truth. That's what we're trying to do. And it's our obligation to do that. So 
this is how I've approached this book and I'm using this approach when I look at any book written by a Muslim woman now because we have to learn from our mistakes and I would invite you to do the same inshallah so I've decided to evaluate the opinions in this book without a negative or positive bias and just because she is a Muslim woman it shouldn't mean that we automatically assume she has our best interests at heart. I think that is another fair um, approach to take. So rather, we should evaluate the ideas in the book objectively and unemotionally. Um, And I'll explain the unemotionally part as we go along. And so, and then secondly, it's essential to assess whether a writer's views are in line with the majority mainstream scholarly Islamic opinions. I think that is so important nowadays because as a lay person, as someone, I'm not a scholar and a majority of my listeners, I know you guys aren't scholars either. So we don't, so we don't know Arabic. We haven't studied the Quran in detail. We can't, we haven't studied the Hadith. So when we see an eye of Quran, when we see a Hadith, we cannot interpret it ourselves we have to go to people of knowledge so we have the four madhabs you know um we have that we have access to um people of knowledge and we can ask them so what does this hadith mean what does this surah mean that's what and there is a mainstream alhamdulillah a mainstream traditional um you know um consensus about islam islamic things you know relating to whether it's here it's going to be about women it's women's issues so we can find those opinions rather than the opposite what what is the opposite the opposite is where I interpret things with no knowledge I'm going to give you know the analogy would you go to you want to find out about medicine you've got a let's say you've got a medical issue who do you go to you go to some a doctor with knowledge and who specializes in that area that's your life you're speaking about. So why would we not do the same when it comes to Islam? Yeah, when we genuinely want to find and understand what Allah wants us to do, what our Creator wants us to do. So I'm again, I'm going to be evaluating this, but the views given about Islam based on using that criteria. Inshallah, I hope that you know is, is really clear. So um, so let's let's take a look then. Um, now, there are many issues that are raised in this book. Um, I'd, I'm not going to go through all of them because there's just too many. So there's certain ones that I think I, that I was interested in. I'm going to be raising them. So now this book, um, the author, she's written to challenge. Yeah, she does not mince her words, you know. And one of the premise of her book is that Arab men hate women. That, that is it. Why do they hate us? That's one of the things that comes through in this. And her remedy leaves little room for doubt and that unless women in Middle East dispense with religion and their cultures and embrace a liberal equality, they will remain like mere ch- chattel. I'm, I might have pronounced that word wrong. <laughs> that, so her language is often unpleasant and crude. Yeah. She declares, I believe in the power of profanity, 
Profanity, especially delivered by women, that's swearing basically, is a powerful way to transgress the red lines of politeness and niceness that the that the patriarchy and the on, you know, expects of women. So in her mind, that's how she's going to get heard. You know, women's rights can only be secured after women go through a sexual revolution, dispense with anachronistic norms and embrace liberal modernity. So um, that's, that's what she kind of, at the beginning, that she says that, um, lays out very clearly that, she wants to she's she gives she has a very clear idea what's the solution for us and it really is a very that we need to uh, embrace modernity meaning liberal ideas that that's how we're going to get out of this problem that we're facing of men hating us and then men mistreating us now before critiquing her approach i would like to begin this review with overlaps between my thinking and hers so regardless of the quality of evidence she cites and the accurateness of experience, I agree with her that the Muslim world is in a mess. Yeah, I'm to- completely anyone who wants to objectively look at the Muslim world and Muslim societies would agree with that. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, and I think this is one thing that's good about um, her work is that she does raise issues that maybe others are ignoring. So, you know, fair point there. Now, women are treated horrifically in many countries and the injustice many women have to face coupled with the failure of Arab and Muslim governments to protect their rights should make us feel a sense of sadness. You know, and just it's... um, She goes through many statistics and many uh, individual stories. She she goes... She uh, relates her own experiences and... um, who cannot be moved by that yeah that's it's it is the word horrific is the only way to describe what muslim women are going through in muslim countries it's um there's no way to whitewash that no one can uh, um you know even if um even the fact that one two three you know ten women go through that that is bad enough but we know the statistics are very you know they're just an indictment of that our societies are completely um, un-Islamic in many ways. That that's the way they are. So now let's let's just now take that information, those statistics and examples we're given. What do we do with that information? Yeah. So now the problem is twofold. Firstly, that treatment of women falls short of any sense of just society, and secondly, the rule of law is non-existent. In other words, few perpetrators of harm against women seem to face punishment. And that's true that so men are getting away with it. And the thing is that also it's not just men. I women are involved in this as well. And it's also it's a structural issue that I will speak about um later on as well. Now, um it's interesting how did I come about um seeing her work? It was I first came about across her work when I read the chapter she penned um, titled Too Loud, Swears Too Much and Goes Too Far. And um, this was in the, to be honest, equally troubling book. It's not about the broker, where she explains her thinking. So I first read that book. I haven't finished reading that book. 
Um, but she explains her thinking. This is her thinking. She calls for, um, oh, this is the beginning of the quote, social and sexual revolutions alongside the political revolutions of the Arab Spring in order to liberate women from all forms of oppression. So um, she wants a social and sexual revolution as well as political one. So in her mind, this oppression is rooted in Islam, unfortunately, yeah? Yet the perplexing thing is her views are embraced by many young women and, of course, championed by Westerners eager to find so-called independent voices in the Muslim world, even if she is a New Yorker. So do you see, um, that's the... That that's the thing that I couldn't really get my head around. That when I read that chapter, and um, in that chapter she talks about profanity, and she does swear a lot in that chapter. In it's not about the burqa. When I read that, I just thought um, this doesn't. Um, this is not in in um, uh, in sync with my Islamic beliefs, uh, Muslims' beliefs. That to want she's calling for a social and sexual revolution. And um, how does that tie in with Islam? I, I do, and that's one of the reasons why I then wanted to read this book, because I thought, I sh- let me find out more about her ideas. And I watched a couple of her videos as well. But, um, but just on a side point, there's an interesting book that I heard about. I haven't read it. It's called Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud, The Rise and Reign of the Unruly Woman. It's by Anne Helen Peterson. And um, there's, the title sounds very similar to the chapter of that, you know, too loud, swears too much and goes too far. So um, now in that book, Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud, um, what the author's doing is that she's speaking about, um, she, she looks at female celebrities who are pushing the boundaries of what it's meant to be an acceptable woman. And, um, you know, the type that won't shut up, who's too brazen, too opinionated, too much. She's the unruly woman and she embodies one of the most provocative and powerful forms of womanhood today. And in that book that the author Peterson um, looks at women like Serena Williams, Hillary Clinton, Nicki Minaj and Kim Kardashian. And what that author is saying is that it's okay and it's good to be too fat, too slutty, too loud. We shouldn't criticise women for being any of those things. And again, I thought, um, isn't it interesting that that woman's coming from a feminist perspective that um, we should celebrate the unruly woman, a woman who is profane, a woman who is, you know, loud, who is shameless if we look at the example of Nicki Minaj and Kim Kardashian they they are shameless um uh, but that's a good thing yeah and it's interesting that um I see this author coming under that um headline as well that and she is saying that she's telling us that this is we should to be like this is not a bad thing and I would say to, to that as she noted it as a Muslim woman that is not how we want to be. Yeah, there is a way to speak the truth and there is a way to um, highlight the problems that are happening in the Muslim world to women, 
but we don't have to be loud and we don't need to swear and we don't that's not the sunnah of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam yeah um so that that's something to to really bear in mind let's now move on to the idea of a sexual revolution and what does that even mean and why where has that idea come from so i've read a number of books and articles about the sexual revolution that took place in the 1960s and this happened it began in america and um it you know then spread in the in the western world so the other books i've read include a return to modesty by wendy shallet and sex object by jessica valenti they they're both american jessica valenti is a feminist now both hold opposing views about the benefits of the sexual revolution for women living in america and we we actually read return to modesty as part of the thinking muslim book club that we have on goodreads and um love you guys to join that if you if you want to you know uh, i know the people that have joined so far have said that they are reading more because they've joined the book club and alhamdulillah that is brilliant that was the whole point of it so okay so what was the sexual revolution also known as a time of sexual liberation it was a social movement that challenged traditional codes of behavior related to sexuality calling for sexual equality for women in their interpersonal relationships throughout the united states and subsequently the wider world so from the 1960s to the 1980s sexual sexual liberation included increased acceptance of sex outside of traditional heterosexual monogamous relationships primarily marriage so it became more acceptable to you know sleep around the normalization of contraception and the pill public nudity pornography premarital sex homosexuality and legalization of abortion these are all um things that happened because of the sexual lib- liberation and you know that is what the revolution was now at the same time so in parallel uh as a sexual revolution was taking place second wave feminism began in the united states in the early 1960s and last and roughly lasted two decades it spread quickly across the western world now whereas the first wave feminism focused mainly on suffrage and overturning legal obstacles to gender equality i.e. voting rights and property rights the second wave feminism broadened the debate to include a wider range of issues i.e. sexuality family the workplace and reproductive rights so we can observe that the combined consequence of both of these movements was that women were now positively encouraged to be sexually free and equally promiscuous as men so instead of questioning the idea that why are men promiscuous that it's not right that men sleep around or that men you know may get a girl pregnant and take no responsibility um that wasn't it was that wasn't question it was actually then thought no they can do that so therefore we should be able to do it you know that that was because again remember liberals believe in freedom and equality they're they're two, the two important things so so th- that sexual revolution that happened 
we are now seeing the results of it today. Yeah. Um, so the, um, and I think many women of all faiths are not happy with the hypersexualized society that we are now living in and that we have to deal with. So we're not just for our children, but for ourselves. Um, who can say that they think it's a good thing that pornography is now so widely available everywhere? Yeah, who can say that it's a good thing that um, the role models that um, women are given are always, they are very sexualized and the images used to portray a, a empowered, you know, strong woman are sexualized. Yeah, we are, um, and young girls feel this pressure to be like that and to conform. That's not a good thing. And, you know, let's not even go into how men and young boys are um, indoctrinated by popular culture to view girls and women as sex objects, as um, Jessica Valenti said. Um, it's that this is not a good, you know, the cooperation between sexes is gone because um, every, you know, the op- every men and women are looking at each other in a sexual manner. They're not thinking of them as, you know, the idea that they might be their brother, their sister, their colleague, that that is so far away now. And we can put the blame on the sexual revolution for that. So therefore, um, for the author to then be saying somehow that the Muslim world needs to also go through this. And we um, let's be realistic here. The Muslim world is going already. It's affected by Western culture and popular culture. We have our own Muslim versions or, you know, whether it's Pakistani or um, Indian or which, whichever country version of sexualization happening right now. And I don't think the question is, is that um, what we need? Yeah, and I would say, no, we don't need that. We don't need um, to have, you know, the rape culture, the high levels of abortion, the, you know, you know, okay, date rape as well. You know, again, the knock-on effects of the hypersexualization has been that the body issues that women have, you know, this whole fake Instagram, social media culture of, um, you know, this, um, of, this per- of this perfect beauty that we have to try to attain this has all come because everything has become so much more lax and you know um morals generally when it comes to sexual morals in particular have 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 disappeared and what i would then say again as muslims you know we are told to you know um like i said this lifestyle goes against islamic values you know normalizing zina which is fornication you know encourages people to question the sanctity of marriage and promotes shamelessness, which in the Quran Allah describes calls fahsha and fa and al fahisha. So in Surah um, Al Isra, that's Surah seventeen, Ayah thirty two. This is just one of many examples. Allah says, and do not approach unlawful sexual intercourse. Indeed, it is ever an immorality, and it is evil as a way. You know. And so just um, al-fahsha, this refers to shamelessness in the general sense, the idea of being inappropriate um, or doing ugly things, you know, anything that is ugly, detestable behavior is considered fahsha, socially unacceptable speech, socially unacceptable clothing, actions, vulgarity, lewdness, etc. fall under fahsha, 
you know, and you can, I would say to you, do more research on the, what the uh, um, the whole idea of fascia and how we why we are told to stay away from it. I think we can all figure it out ourselves, actually, why we should. But so, you know, I completely um, have to reject the idea that we somehow that if the Muslim world went has would go through the same sexual revolution that the Western world has gone through, that would be a good thing for us. It most definitely will not. Regarding the sexual revolution, um, she says, begin quote, I'm not naive enough to think that fornication will disappear as a concept or as a sin from either the Muslim or Christian way of life in our region. I'm instead calling for a pragmatic approach to sexuality that would allow consenting adults who choose to have sex with other consenting adults the freedom to do so, with the knowledge and birth control they require to do safely. That freedom to choose will not infringe on the freedom to choose to wait until marriage, if that is what you want. The more freedom you have, we have, the more choices available to people. The fewer freedoms we have, the fewer hypocrisies will eat away at the heart of our society. So you can see that this is um, exactly what liberals think. This is when I was, you know, I said at the beginning that she's a liberal and her solutions are from a secular liberal perspective. That That's an example of that. And, um, you know, achieving social, political and sexual equality for women is her mission. So that is what she wants. When we're reading that, that is what she's telling us to want. If she finds an Islamic rule that disagrees with these principles, then the rule has to be rejected. This is because her connection with Allah is not one of submitting to his omnipotence, but to only incorporate aspects of that the religion which accord with social liberalism. She says, I insist on the right to critique both my culture and my faith in ways that I would reject from an outsider. So, you know, I've heard this argument, and you've heard it a lot as well, that Islam isn't the problem, it's our culture. But um, I think that's really simplistic because many times our culture is connected to Islam. And I think that's up to us to make sure the culture we adopt has its roots in Islam. But it's so easy to say, yeah, there are cultural practices that are wrong and therefore um, if we reject them, then somehow everything will be okay. And I think we need to, again, dig deeper here. So now it's interesting for Elta Harvey, she rallies against conservative interpretations of Islam. And maybe here she has a point. As a result of two centuries of liberalisation... Muslim scholars have adopted a conservatism to respond to liberal degradation. It's a defence mechanism to attempt to safeguard the family in the face of a cultural onslaught. However, one must not be under any illusion. If she was offered a selection of more softer Islamic opinions, she would no doubt find any law that didn't accord with the Western conception of rights to be unacceptable. For example, a husband seeing it as his responsibility to pay the bills or even separate entrances to a mosque would be seen as part of the patriarchy. So I think we do need to be really clear 
about where she's coming from. And so she says, in Tunisia, polygamy has was banned. And I agree with this. A man should not be able to marry four women unless a woman can marry four men. I am not monogamous. I don't believe in monogamy. And I don't have just one partner. But Islam allows men to be polygamous and not me. It's unfair. Either both can have multiple partners or neither can. So can you see where she's coming from? And um, so again, this is the, when I was reading this and I would genuinely, as I said in the beginning, I was reading it with an open mind because I had heard so much praise online for the book, It's Not About the Burqa. I thought that, well, why are Muslim women who cover, who are Islamically minded, you know, and, and, and just other Muslim women, why are they saying this book is so good? So when the very first chapter, when I read it, I thought so much contradicts Islam. And as I've then read this book, again, she is a Muslim, but that being a Muslim hasn't affected her views. It's actually, she ignores what Islam says about all of these problems and issues. And so therefore, can we really take her as someone who we should listen to? And I would say no, based on, you know, a very dispassionate way of look, um, reading of this book. And um, although, you know, um, she speaks and writes in a very emotional way. And I think we can't um, be taken up by that emotion. When we hear the really graphic stories and injustices, getting angry achieves nothing. Yeah. Um, anger is from shaitan. You know, there's this famous hadith that when we feel anger, we should do what do. We should sit down. You know, there's, I think then we're told to lie down. So anger, looking at a subject through anger is not the way of a Muslim. We we look at it calmly. We look then look at uh, go back to Quran and Sunnah, and then we find an answer. Yeah, if we act upon anger, we'll do something wrong, and um, and therefore her uh, her solutions are fueled by anger. That's what I see, and therefore I don't want my solutions that I'm going to adopt to be fueled by anger. Yeah, being outraged is not enough, it's not an excuse to then ignore um, what Allah's teachings. And so, um, you know, um, she will not accept any Islam that isn't chastened by secular liberalism. And this is the most worrying problem. She sounds like a radical and, you know, that she's fighting for the Muslim corner and for the Muslim woman, but that's only in tone her prescriptions are as old as the imperialism she borrows them from. Like Lord Cromer before her, who was a 19th century um, Englishman who was in charge of Egypt, um, he saw the liberation of women to be the key to unlocking the Muslim world. However, in practice, imperialism had a more sinister aim, i.e. to destroy Muslim families as a mean to destroy Muslim society. I did a podcast on um, feminism, how it's a tool of, it's a foreign policy tool. You can hear about Lord Cromer in detail in that podcast. 
Um, so she continues. This is now her looking at the Arab countries. Name me, in, this is the beginning of a quote, name me an Arab country and I'll recite a litany of abuses against women occurring in that country. Abuses f- fueled by a toxic mix of culture and religion that few seem willing to dista- dis- disentangle lest they bless- blaspheme or offend. So again, this a toxic mix of culture and religion. Um, so again, religion is seen as toxic. Um, and she's saying they people aren't willing to tackle it because they think I might blaspheme. But, um, you know, her solution is that Islam must be reformed. Muslims should take a secular approach to their religion, just as Christians and Jews have. Allah and his messenger come after Locke and Voltaire. Remember Locke, John Locke, the founding father of liberalism. Voltaire was a French philosopher, if I'm correct. Now, El-Tahari would have approved of the latter's play labelling the Prophet of Islam a fanatic and an imposter in the name of free speech. That was some Voltaire um, put on that play. And it is it, that's as far as it goes, because her criticism of Islam comes in the form of straw men. She glosses over two centuries of colonialism in the Muslim world, the cause behind it, despotism and failed societies in both Saudi Arabia and Egypt and instead shifts the blame on Islam so this is what I mean by straw men is you know you can um, take cheap shots I could do this that um well and and I hope I haven't done this actually because um although I did say the sexual revolution the problems we see is pornography anorexia bulimia um I would even say you know the the, you know, date rape. These things um, are here in the West and they're a problem. But for me to say that is the only thing about Western culture and that everything else is bad, that would be me taking those problems and saying, look at those non-Muslims, look how bad they are, and then attacking them, ignoring, you know, the other things that they have done. And I haven't got time to now go through all the good things that um, have happened in the West. Um, but, you know, like just as one example, the technology, technological advances have happened in the West. We can't ignore them. We use them, you know, the rise of the internet, the good that comes out of the internet, medical um, advancements, you know, that you can't ignore those things. However, um, in the same way, like if we just look at, um, if we look at the um, situation of the African-Americans, they, um, they live in, um, a person could look at their situation, their communities and say, um, look at them, they're, they're drug dealers, they're alcoholics, their education, they're so bad when it comes to education, they don't have good businesses, look at their communities, they're so dirty and filthy, yeah, their health, they're so unhealthy, they're so obese, we could look at that, you know, we could look at their domestic violence rates, we could look at their burglary rates, things like that. And we could just blame them and say that all black men, let's let now at Danny Moore, are so bad and they're so bad to their women. You know, we could do that or, and we could do that or we could look at the history that how, why are they so poor? Why do they live in the areas they live in? What discrimination have they gone through? You know, their his, the history of slavery, 
the history of um, structural discrimination that they've faced, yeah, the police brutality that we see, you know. So either we can be honest and objective and look at the history of a people to understand the reality that exists now. That's what someone, that's what we should do. And then we can you look at solutions, but we have to understand the, the situation in a truthful, honest way. Um, but unfortunately, she doesn't do that when it comes to the Muslim world and our societies. So that's what I mean by she's, um, I'm sure she is aware of the colonialism, but um, the cause of our, um, of Saudi Arabia and Egypt, which she focuses on particularly because she lived there, the blade, they are not that way because of Islam. You know, a true academic would have analysed the status of Muslim women throughout Islamic history, measured that with the decline from the 19th century onwards, and found the liberalisation process that undermined the fabric of Muslim life. Because it would, uh, an honest question would be to say that have those problems always existed in the Muslim world? Was there a time where women were protected? where they were honoured, where the, um, you know, or, and also ask, well, if it wasn't always the case, what happened in our world, in our Muslim worlds, to bring about that caused us to then become, have such dysfunctional, chaotic societies? That That's an honest question. So just, the, I'm just going to look at the example of Saudis, Saudi regime and the Saudi family. Now, the Saudi family has used religion to maintain the monarchy and justify their autocratic rule. The relationship between religion and monarchy was the result of an 18th century pact between Muhammad bin Saud and the religious authority in order to fight the Ottoman Empire. This pact served and was instigated by the British as it sought to undermine Ottoman strength. Um, I would say, find, please research that a bit more, that... How did the Saudi family come into power and how have they ruled the country? Um, everyone knows that Saudi Arabia, the, 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 not the, I'm not thinking or speaking about the people, I'm talking about the government and the laws they implement. It's not based on Islam. So therefore, you cannot blame Islam for the um, problems that exist in Saudi. You have to actually blame the Saudi government and then also the British for their interference there. So that's what I would say about Saudi. Now, um, she also criticises Egypt. Uh, this is the beginning of a quote. When an article in the Egyptian criminal code says that if a woman has been beaten by her husband with good intentions, no punitive damages can be attain, obtained, then to hell with political correctness. So she gives many examples of how there's laws in Egypt that are... Um, um, hateful towards women and um, and and that's true yeah but again I'm going um, Egypt is not by any stretch stretch of imagination a state obedient to Islamic law yeah we need to, this is what I mean by going back to understanding history and that we shouldn't just take um, one author's view that she that they are giving yeah we have to um, and critique it that's what I'm doing. So, Egypt was ruled by foreign imperial powers, again, the British Empire. Modern Egypt dates back to 
1922 when it gained nominal independence from the British Empire as a monarchy. However, British military occupation of Egypt continued and many Egyptians believed that the monarchy was an instrument of British colonialism. The current Prime Minister is Abdel Fateh al-Sisi. His government is di- dedicated, it's, it's a dictatorship here as well, and a dictatorship that was voted in because he acts like a dictator. Uh, so he's dedicated to maintaining Egypt as a secular state, not a religious state. The secular state was consolidated by the British to serve their interests. The absence of rights isn't due to Islam, but in, um, in con- because of Islam's absence in state and society. So again, that is what I would, that's the cause of the problems in Egypt. Now, does that mean we don't speak about them? No, absolutely not. We should talk about them, but also understand where the problems come from so we can understand where we should take the solution from. So now most secular autocrats in the Muslim world have tried to force through a process of liberalisation from above. So Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi is doing that right now. Hosni Mubarak did that in Egypt. Think of um, Ataturk in Turkey. In this forced liberalisation, what I mean is it was forcing women to take the hijabs off, changing the education curriculum from being based on Islam to being based on a Western model. Yeah, these things, changing, stopping the adhan being said in in public, you know. Um, The list is endless. That's what it means by you forcibly liberalising the society. Now, this forced liberalisation began under colonial powers. And so what we have now in the Muslim world are post-colonial constructs that serve Western interests. You know, we need to understand geopolitics when it comes to our, um, our worlds, yeah? Colonialism and its aftermath are the reason why Muslim societies are so dysfunctional and are failing both men and women. And so in Egypt, you have liberal elites. So the rich elite, the people who, you know, are part of the government, part of the business interests. Um, the, um, they live under autocrat. They've safe, you know, they live there safely, living in a life of luxury. And, um, and she mentioned that in her book, actually, that there was this very massive contrast. Um, so now they raid the country of its wealth and flout their social, social cultures in public, looking down with disdain at the poor and the religious. And then they write books in New York calling for Islamic reformation. Yeah, that, that's exactly what's going on. Their pretenses fall on deaf ears in the Muslim world, but in the West, young Muslims um, that live on a diet of social media outrage find a cause in El Tahari. Can you see that this is what happens? Now, um, just as uh, coming to the end of this, um, El Tahari denies that she wants the West to rescue us. Yeah. um, And these are her words, only we can rescue ourselves. That's her end of quote. But after reading this book, it's clear her aim for me and you as Muslim women is to replace our Islamic identity and rescue ourselves by adopting secular liberalism. Her intentions are illustrated by her comments about wearing hijab and the niqab. 
Um, so she says, um, I support the bans on the face veil that have been imposed in France, Belgium and some parts of Barcelona and Spain. So she is for the ban on niqab. Okay, let's make that very clear. And I'm not sure what her views are now because this book was written in 2015. But she is actually a case study of what can happen to a Muslim woman who adopts feminism and how that affects their belief. So um, she says that when she was a teenager, I think it was when she was 19, she actually did wear hijab. So she wore hijab and then, but the reason why she wore it is that was the idea of choice. And she says that herself, that um, the idea, if a woman could wear a um, mini skirt, you know, here we go. If a woman had a right to wear a mini skirt, surely I had the right to choose my headscarf. My choice was a sign of my independence of mind. Surely to choose to wear what I wanted was an assertion of my feminism. I was a feminist, wasn't I? So now we know that that is um, a justification that many of us have used and still do use that my body, my choice, you know, hijab is my choice. And that's exactly what Mona El-Tahari did when she was, this was like, so maybe 30 years ago so but then it's interesting she then says but I was to learn that choosing to wear the hijab is much easier than choosing to take it off so if you have choice inevitably you then are saying you can have the choice to take it off as well but what we understand very clearly is that when we are any law any rule that Allah's given us we're submitting to Allah's will, that he's our creator, he knows what's best. <coughs> and we don't say, so my salah, my choice, you know, my prayer, my choice, my fasting, my choice, um, my hajj, my choice. Why is it that we don't say that for any other Islamic rule, but we do say that, that has now become something that we as Muslim women say when it comes to hijab? And I'm going to answer that question. It's because it comes from the feminist second wave feminism idea of my body, my choice. That was their slogan and we have adopted it from them. And the reason why we've adopted it is that when we try to defend hijab, we, we to say I'm obeying my creator, I'm a slave of Allah, that's not going to cut it with a liberal. They're going to just think, well, then you're stupid. So we have amalgamated and um, liberalised our answers so that non-Muslims will like what we say. And then for our younger generation, because they have grown up with all of these words and ideas, we then, it's more palatable to our young girls that we say, oh no, it's your choice. You're choosing to obey Allah. But then we should also then say that when we don't wear it, we're choosing to disobey Allah and that has consequences yeah so she that she is a case study of someone who's taken that who used to think of it in that way maybe initially she thought of it uh, as a religious obligation now what's interesting then is that she says that when she had um when I began to struggle with the hijab she then I found alternative interpretations I did not at first have the power or courage simply to stop wearing my headscarf. I needed allies 
whose religious knowledge I could use against those scholars who maintained that the hijab was a religious, religiously mandated. So can you see the journey? So she started to have doubts. So she read this feminist literature that created doubts. And then she had to, she didn't have the courage to take it off. So she need, looked for alternative interpretations of the iron hadith. And isn't that exactly what's going on today? Is I wonder, have some of us even done that to um, justify that I'm going to wear the turban or I'm going to show my neck? You know, you, you know what you've been going through. I know what I've gone through. But it's um, her example is very um, telling. And so she found those people. So there was Leila Ahmed, uh, Fatima Maranisi. Neither of them are have studied um, Quran and Hadith in depth to be able to... Um, you know, say that they can give those a valid interpretation. It's just their views. Not adopt fringe opinions and that we must keep to traditional Islamic scholarship and the mainstream views of, again, orthodoxy is in our religion. Because um, she continues to say, Layla Ahmed further bolstered my ammunition against the hijab. You know, what is this ammunition against the hijab by explicitly differing with the opinions that claim the Quran mandates veiling? Um, it is nowhere explicitly prescribed in the Quran. The only verses dealing with women's clothing instruct women to guard their private parts. Now, me and you know that that is complete nonsense. If a person, there were women who find it difficult to wear hijab because of the circumstances, they're on a particular journey. You know, alhamdulillah, our du'as are with them. But for someone to, someone who publicly and openly um, says the opposite to what we all know is true, that hijab is an obligation. And so we hear and we obey. So, and the problem here is that, so as Muslims, we, this is what I was saying at the beginning, where we don't, we need to, evaluate the views that an author is giving us we don't just take it for granted just because some stuff they say is correct it doesn't mean everything they will be giving us will be correct and so um that this is the i guess this is you know in conclusion um we need to be aware when um there are going to be many books written by muslim women in the future and we just need to be um evaluate them based on our Islam, not on, not in an emotional manner, not in a, um, you know, not even in a, we don't need to use gender, the lens of gender when we're um, um, evaluating a text for its um, validity and its truthfulness. And so just to end, um, there's another book that she's written. Um, this was in 2019, it's a more recent book. So, and it's, um, the title is The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls. Um, Mona El-Tahawi advocates a muscular liberalism, an out loud approach to teaching women and girls to harness their power through what she calls the seven necessary sins that women are, and girls are not supposed to commit, to be angry, ambitious, profane, violent, tension-seeking, lustful and powerful. I think I've heard enough from this author so I don't think that I'll be reading that book um, inshallah if you found this podcast useful please share it with your friends and family if you have any questions or feedback you can email me info at farhat no my email has changed it's farhat I'll spell it f-a-r-h-a-t 
a-m-i-n-u-k at gmail.com. I'd love to know what you thought of this podcast. And inshallah, I do plan to review, do book reviews of other books that I'm reading. I'm really um, enjoying the reading that I'm doing and I'm really enjoying the editing that I'm doing of the book, the uh, forthcoming book, An Islamic Alternative to Feminism. The writers are all, mashallah, they're all writing their chapters and so the the research is continuing. We hope that, you know, we'll have something soon. I think it'll be in a a few months. But inshallah, I'd like to ask you for your duas for this project. We do have a launch good page, which um, where, you know, um, you know, what's the word? We're looking, running out of words now. Um, If you'd like to contribute, then, you know, please go to Lunch Good and you'll see the book there, inshallah. So um, take care and uh, I'll have a new podcast episode soon. Assalamu alaikum, your sister Farhat Amin.